I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time around, we are looking at Ben-Hur from 1959. And when I say we, I mean myself and my ever-present co-host, Trey Hooks. How you doing, Trey? Good, Blaine. How are you today? I'm doing well. So... This month around, we are looking at, as we said, the 1959 edition of Ben-Hur. So it's the second film adaptation of this. The screenplay is credited to Carl Thunberg, based on a novel by Lou Wallace. And there was some uncredited contributions by Gore Vidal. It was directed by William Wyler. And it was released on November 18th, 1959. So, the plot synopsis, courtesy of the fine people contributing to Wikipedia. In the prologue, a baby is born in Bethlehem among the shepherds and visited by magi in a cave. In AD 26, Judah Ben-Hur is a wealthy Jewish prince and merchant in Jerusalem, living with his mother Miriam and his sister Tirza. The family's loyal slave, the merchant Simonides, pays a visit with his daughter Esther. Seeing each other for the first time since childhood, Judah and Esther fall in love, but she is betrothed to another. After several years away from Jerusalem, Judah's childhood friend, Messala, returns as a commander of the fortress of Antonia. Messala believes in the glory of Rome and its imperial power, while Judah is devoted to his faith and the freedom of the Jewish people. This difference causes tension between the friends and results in their split after Messala issues an ultimatum demanding that Judah deliver potential rebels to the Roman authorities. During a parade for the new governor of Judea, Valerius Gratus, loose tiles fall from the roof of Judah's house. Gratus is thrown from his horse and nearly killed. Although Messala knows this was an accident, he condemns Judah to the galleys and imprisons Miriam and Tirza. Simonides confronts Messala and is also imprisoned. Judah swears revenge upon Messala. As he and other slaves are marched to the galleys, they stop in Nazareth to water the Romans' horses. Judah begs for water, but the commander of the Roman detachment denies it to him. Judah collapses, but is revived when Jesus gives him water. Just going to throw in a little editorial side note. Judah, at this point, does not know who that man was. He was just a stranger who provided water. After three years as a galley slave, Judah is assigned to the flagship of the Roman consul Quintus Arius, who has been charged with destroying a fleet of Macedonian pirates. Arius admires Judah's determination and self-discipline, and offers to train him as a gladiator or charioteer. Judah declines the offer. When the Roman fleet encounters the Macedonians, Arius exempts Judah, among all the rowers, from being chained to the ship. Arius's galley is rammed and sunk, but Judah frees as many other rowers as he can and rescues Arius. Arius believes he has lost the battle and attempts to fall on his sword, but Judah stops him. After they are rescued, Arius is told he was victorious. Arius petitions Emperor Tiberius to free Judah and adopts him as his son. Judah becomes a champion charioteer, then returns to Judea. Along the way, he meets Balthazar and Arab Sheikh Itterman. 
After noting Judah's prowess as a charioteer, the sheik asked him to drive his quadriga in a race before the new governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Judah declines, even after learning that Messala will compete. Judah returns to Jerusalem. He finds Esther and learns she is not married and that she still loves him. Miriam and Tirzah contracted leprosy in prison and were expelled from the city. The women beg Esther to conceal their condition from Judah, so Esther tells Judah they died. Judah smashes his family's mezuzah, then seeks revenge by competing against Messala in the chariot race. Sheik Iterim goads Messala into making an enormous wager on himself. During the race, Messala drives a chariot with blades on the hubs to disable his competitors. He attempts to destroy Judah's chariot, but wrecks his own instead. He is dragged behind his horses and trampled by another chariot, while Judah wins the race. Before dying, Messala tells Judah to search for his family in the Valley of the Lepers. Judah visits the leper colony, where he confronts Esther while she delivers supplies to his mother and sister. Esther convinces Judah not to see them. Judah visits Palate and rejects his patrimony and Roman citizenship. He returns with Esther to the leper colony, reveals himself to Miriam, and learns that Tirzah is dying. Judah and Esther take Miriam and her daughter to see Jesus, but the trial of Jesus has begun. As Jesus is carrying his cross through the streets, he collapses. Judah recognizes him as the man who gave him water years before and reciprocates. As Judah witnesses the crucifixion of Jesus, Miriam and Tirzah are miraculously healed. So that is a fairly effective condensed synopsis. I do say condensed because this is the longest Best Picture winner since Gone with the Wind. There are a lot of interesting comparisons between this and Gone with the Wind. Yeah, yeah, this is... Well, I think there's only a nine-minute difference in runtime for starters. This one's 222 minutes. Well, and this was based off of a novel, the name of the writers escaping me, but it was the best-selling novel of all time until Gone with the Wind came out. Okay, yeah, that was uh, Lou Wallace, who was actually credited in the film as General Lou Wallace. So the novel is Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, which is in the public domain. It's on Project Gutenberg. So I haven't read it yet, but I know it's available. So if any listeners are interested in checking out the novel, then yeah, that is legally and freely available. Just hit uh, gutenberg.org. So what is your history with the film? This is the first time I think I've seen it all the way through. The first time I became aware of it was my sophomore year of high school. I had a world history teacher who essentially showed the the two big effect shots. He showed the uh, galley scenes and he showed the chariot race as kind of his pop culture synopsis of Roman culture. Okay. Yeah, so it's similar with me, except I didn't have any teachers who were doing it. I had seen clips of it, but yeah, this was my first time watching it start to finish. So although I did take a break, there there is that the intermission and the entreact mm-hmm. built into the film. So in, I got the four DVD set that includes the silent film on another disc. And yeah, so I watched the two hours of disc one, took a dinner break, and then came back for the the rest on disc two. So I was actually impressed with how quickly paced it feels. 
because when you hear this is two hours and 22 minutes and it's a sweeping biblical epic, I was prepared for something slower paced than this. It's still not at the pace we are used to today. The advent of digital editing in the mid 80s has drastically changed the pacing of all movies, really. But it's, you know, it's not a, a 2001 in terms of pacing. It, it does move at a fairly decent clip. It, it does. And I, I find where it slows down is when it tries to bring Jesus back into the narrative. I haven't read the book, but I did a little bit of uh, research on it for our podcast. And both the book and the movie are kind of presenting Ben-Hur as kind of a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern kind of character. So the intent is that you show Ben-Hur and Jesus kind of weaving in and out of each other's lives. And the book does much more of a parallel between the two than the movie does. So some of Esther being at one of his sermons, I felt kind of slowed the pacing. And I'm wondering if there was still a way that you could have conveyed that the carpenter was Jesus without doing the nativity story. Because that seemed somewhat out of place to me. It was it was well shot, but it just didn't really kind of fit into the overall story. What, what I gather from the book is that Ben-Hur and Jesus are supposed to be the same age, so they were both born at relatively the same time. But since we don't see Ben-Hur in the film until he's a full-grown man, I, I don't know that you need that first five minutes at the beginning. Yeah, I I think there are a couple things. Like you said, when Jesus comes on screen, it does tend to slow down. I think if this were like an Ender's Game or Ender's Shadow type thing, where it was just a story and not the text of the religion that was adhered to by the creators, I wonder if they would have cut more of Jesus' story out. It sounds like they already did leave quite a bit out, perhaps, to, to tell his own story. And perhaps because the way that they chose to make this, you actually never get a clear shot of Jesus' face, so they might have been trying to avoid that, you know, to kind of let him be what you picture him to be. Which I did like from an artistic choice, because it did make him more of a mysterious figure. Yes. Yeah, I agree. It It, it was well handled in that respect. It's just... As soon as they hit it, they slowed it down, and I think they were, you know, trying to convey the sense of awe and wonder that people had in his presence. But the way it was shot, maybe it felt like it slowed down. I don't know, maybe it felt that way because that's not the theology I adhere to. Maybe it felt that way because the film doesn't, it, it's the show don't tell. Mm-hmm. The film tells us what he does. It doesn't show us so much what he does. And yet, it should be accepted by the audiences. So I think it's built in assuming that the audience is Christian. Which, to be fair, was a pretty safe assumption in 1950s American moviegoers. Right. While there were a lot of non-Christians in America, 
they tended to have less disposable income and were not the people this film was marketed to. So they would even then be less likely to be in those theater seats. So, yeah, I think that part could have been a little bit better. I haven't read the book either. I do have a very devout Baptist friend who assures me it is a really good book. And, you know, you don't have to be Christian to appreciate it. Although she does warn that it, you know, to get to the the engaging and enjoyable part of the book, you might have to skip the first 50 pages of He Wanders Through the Desert. Well, the, you know, you mentioned them cutting Jesus out of it quite a bit. I, I think a big reason for that is from what I can gather in the book, Judah, because his full name's Judah Ben-Hur, Judah is much more of a revolutionary militant radical, which I completely get why they took out of the movie, because he becomes... Mesala is a complete jerk. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to find a polite term. This entire film, he's aggressive, he's condescending, he's bigoted, and he doesn't have a single redemptive thing throughout the film. Making uh, Judah Ben-Hur peaceful, you know, someone who says, well, let's be honest, your people aren't being great to my people, but not particularly radicalized, makes him much more sympathetic. But the big parallel in the book is the more peaceful, non-militant Jesus versus the radical, I'm building a rebel army, Judah Ben-Hur, that's in the book. Okay. Well, that's good. And I was thinking again, I again, not having seen the, the silent film yet, that same friend who recommended the book, when I posted on Facebook that I was watching this, response was, oh, the good version. So the silent film may not be one that that is greatly appealing to track down. But yeah, I will agree that this this works well and you know, maybe tipping our hat a little bit for who we recommend this to. If you haven't seen it yet, I would say that the moments where it, it does get kind of preachy on the Christian theology add up to maybe half an hour of this 222-minute runtime. For the most part, it is about Judah as a representative and social leader of an oppressed people dealing with their oppressors because he has access to have direct conversations that others do not have. And you actually see him being tempted to take on their methods and that price. So even if you do not place a lot of value in the Christian theology, you can appreciate this as what happens when bullies mm -hmm. rise to power, right? And the oppressed people reacting to it. That is a story that is a little too universal, unfortunately. Right. Well, I mean, Masal is essentially a petulant child in this. He comes he comes back, quote-unquote, home, expecting to pick things right up. He has this friend who he kind of views as one of the good ones when it comes to Jewish people. And I know that that's offensive, but that's, that's his view, right? Yeah, it's deliberately offensive for the story they're telling. Right, and the the second Judah doesn't toe the line and, you know, stay in the lane that uh, 
Masala expects him to be in, he seizes on that on the accident to completely take everything away from Judah and does it out of spite. Like I expected later in the film that we would expect that because it was mentioned how wealthy Judah's family was, that Masala would have taken over all of his properties and assumed all of his wealth for his own. No, he just lets it go to ruin. He just did not want Judah to have it anymore as revenge. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, he is. He's one of those villains that is well-crafted in the sense that it's very easy to hate him. Even if you were somehow still a supporter of the Roman Empire, you could look at him and say, yeah, he is not one of the good ones in terms of the Roman leadership. So yeah, it, he is well designed as a villain that you can easily hate and get behind Judah regardless of how you view the you know these people in general. So so shall we get into the general nominations for the year? Sure. So the 32nd annual Academy Awards that the ceremony for those was done on April 4th, 1960, hosted by Bob Hope. And it actually ran an hour and 40 minutes. So these were still in the shorter days. We forgot to mention last month with Gigi's ceremony, they actually ran out of time and Jerry Lewis had to ad lib, including trying to teach himself the saxophone, which he had never played before live because he had 20 minutes of broadcast time to fill. Anyway, so for this one, as you probably know, Ben-Hur won Best Picture. It was up against Anatomy of a Murder, The Diary of Anne Frank, The Nun's Story, and Room at the Top. William Wyler won Best Director for Ben-Hur, beating out George Stevens for Diary of Anne Frank, Fred Zinnemann for The Nun's Story, Jack Clayton for Room at the Top, and Billy Wilder for Some Like It Hot. Best Actor went to Charlton Heston as Ben-Hur. He beat out Lawrence Harvey for Room at the Top, Jack Lemmon for Some Like It Hot, Paul Muni for Last Angry Man, and James Stewart for Anatomy of a Murder. Best Actress went to Simone Signoret for her work in Room at the Top, beating out Doris Day in Pillow Talk, Audrey Hepburn in The Nun Story, Catherine Hepburn and Elizabeth Taylor both for Suddenly Last Summer. Best Supporting Actor went to Hugh Griffith for his work in Ben-Hur as the Sheik Eaterim. Arthur O'Connell was nominated for Anatomy of a Murder, as was George C. Scott. Robert Vaughn was up for The Young Philadelphians, and Ed Wynn for Diary Van Frank. Best Supporting Actress went to Shelley Winters for Diary Van Frank, up against Hermione Badley for Room at the Top, Susan Conner and Juanita Moore, each for Imitation of Life, and Thelma Ritter for Pillow Talk. Best Story and Screenplay, written directly for the screen, went to Pillow Talk, and Russell Rouse, Clarence Green, Stanley Shapiro, and Maurice Richland. That beat out The 400 Blows, which is impressive to have any non-English language film get nominated in anything but the best foreign language film categories. It also beat out North by Northwest, Operation Petticoat, and Wild Strawberries. The best screenplay based on adapted material, Room at the Top 1, with Neil Patterson adapting the novel by John Brain, it beat out Anatomy of a Murder, Ben-Hur, The Nun Story, and Some Like It Hot. Best foreign language film went to Black Orpheus, beating out The Bridge, The Great War, Paw, and The Village on the River. I'm somewhat surprised that 400 Blows was not nominated there. Oh, or Wild Strawberries, both. Mm -hmm. 
evidently came out the same nomination year, so... They did, and actually I should note that Igmar Bergman actually refused the nomination for Wild Strawberries. But yes, um, if you are unfamiliar with the works of Ingmar Bergman, that's something that should be corrected at the soonest available opportunity. I also recommend The Seventh Seal. Best Documentary Feature went to Serengeti Shall Not Die, Beating Out the Race for Space. Best Documentary Short Subject, Glass, Beat Out Donald in Math Magic Land and From Generation to Generation. I have Donald in Math Magic Land. It's quite good. It is. Best Live Action Short Subject went to The Golden Fish by Jacques Cousteau, beating out Between the Tides, Mysteries of the Deep, The Running, Jumping, and Standing Still film, and Skyscraper. The Best Short Subject Cartoons went to Moonbird, beating out Mexicala Schmo's Noah's Ark and the Violinist. The Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture went to Miklos Rosa for his work on Ben-Hur, beating out uh, Alfred Newman for Diary of Anne Frank, Franz Waxman for The Nun Story, Ernest Gold for On the Beach, and Frank Duvall for Pillow Talk. Best Scoring of a Musical went to Andre Previn and Ken Darby for their work on Porgy and Bess, beating out Leith Stevens for Five Pennies, uh, Nelson Riddle and Joseph L. Lilly for Lil Abner, Lionel Newman for Say One For Me, and George Bruns for Sleeping Beauty. Good job, Nelson Riddle. I previously only knew him for coming up with the theme song to the 1966 Batman series. <laughs> Best song went to High Hopes from A Hole in the Head by Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Khan. Uh, beat out title song from Best of Everything, title song from Five Pennies, title song from The Hanging Tree, and Stranger the Ways of Love from The Youngland. Best sound went to Ben-Hur and Franklin Milton beating out Journey to the Center of the Earth, Libel, The Nun Story, and Porgy and Bess. Best Art Direction Black and White went to Diary of Van Frank, beating out Career, The Last Angry Man, Some Like It Hot, and Suddenly Last Summer. Best Art Direction Color again went to Ben Hur, and William A. Horning, posthumously, Edward Carfagno, and Hugh Hunt. They beat out The Big Fisherman, Journey to the Center of the Earth, North by Northwest, and Pillow Talk. Best black and white cinematography went to The Diary of Anne Frank, beating out Anatomy of a Murder, Career, Some Like It Hot, and Young Philadelphians. Best cinematography color went to Robert Surtees and Ben-Hur, beating out The Big Fisherman, The Five Pennies, The Nun Story, and Porgy and Bess. Best costume design black and white went to Ori Kelly for Some Like It Hot, beating out Career with Ida Head, uh, Diary of Anne Frank, The Gazebo, and The Young Philadelphians. Best Costume Design Color went to Elizabeth Haffenden and her work on Ben-Hur. That beat out The Best of Everything, The Big Fisherman, The Five Pennies, and Porgy and Bess. Best Film Editing went to Ralphie Winters and John D. Dunning for their work on Ben-Hur. Beating out Anatomy of a Murder, North by Northwest, The Nun Story, and On the Beach. Best Special Effects went to A. Arnold Gillespie and Robert McDonald and uh, Milo B. Laurie for their work on Ben-Hur beating out Journey to the Center of the Earth. The Academy Honorary Awards went to Buster Keaton for his unique talents, which brought immortal comedies to the screen. I can totally support that one, mm -hmm. given that a lot of Buster Keaton's best work was done before the Oscars even existed. He did some amazing things. Check out The General. It's public domain. It's easy to legally find it on YouTube. And after you watch it, listen to Blaine and Paul Spataro talk about it on Is It Jaws? Yes, that was one of the first ones I did. 
Then an, another honorary award went to Lee DeForest for his pioneering inventions, which brought sound to the motion picture. And the Gene Hirschholt Humanitarian Award went to Bob Hope. So that is a total of 12 nominations for Ben-Hur, which was the most this year. After that, there's Diary of Anne Frank and then Unstory Story tied with eight. And for multiple awards, Ben-Hur took home 11, Diary of Anne Frank took home three, and Room at the Top took home two. So there weren't a huge amount of multiple award winners this year. You may know this better than I do, Blaine. I know that this was a record in terms of nominations versus wins. I'm not sure if it's most wins or highest percentage of nominations won. I'm assuming it's most wins. But this set mm -hmm. a record that lasted until the 90s, correct? Yes. It, it was tied in 1997 and 2003, and it is the most wins in a year, okay. breaking the previous record of nine set by Gigi, but uh, Gigi still holds it for percentage with a large number because Gigi is, it took nine for nine. Okay. So there are a couple of movies that hit 100%, and when they're doing that, they're more focused on, you know, how many nominations did they get because there's a number of films that went one for one right from the start. So when they're at 100%, it's, well, what's the the biggest sweep, so every award that they were nominated for with a significant number of awards. So yeah, that did set it up. So before we look at the Golden Globes, IMDb, and Letterboxd, of these nominations, Ben-Hur, Anatomy of a Murder, Dyer Van Frank, The Nun Story, and The Room at the Top, how many have you seen? I've only seen two. I've seen Ben-Hur and Anatomy of a Murder. Okay. So we're coming in with the same background in that case. Well, I think we'll see when you cover IMDb and Letterboxd. I don't know that the other three are kind of retrospectively still considered in the same stratosphere. Not really. If we go to the IMDb, and then we'll come back to the Golden sure. Globes, the highest rated of the nominees actually on both IMDb and Letterboxd for 1959 releases, is Ben-Hur. And then they both put Anatomy of a Murder second. So looking at IMDb, Ben-Hur actually comes in 10th for the year, and Anatomy of a Murder is number 18. Scrolling down, The Nun's Story comes in next at 28. Room at the Top is 31. And Diary of Anne Frank is 38. Okay. So those are not the, well, we'll get to it later. Right now we'll restrict our conversation to just the nominees. But there are other notables before we hit Ben-Hur. I think my preference between the two is Anatomy of a Murder. Excuse me. But that is more a genre preference than anything. Yeah, I can see that. I, I was leaning the same way, but again... I am a much bigger fan of the, the mystery and the film noir than the biblical epic. And I think it's worth noting when you go to Letterboxd, they both do better than they did on the IMDb. So Ben-Hur comes in at 6th for the year, and Anatomy of a Murder is right behind it at 7th. So they are not that far apart. They also put The Nun Story next, but that comes in at 28th for the year. 
room at the top comes in at 36, and the diary of Anne Frank is 38 there as well. So looking at, uh, actually, let's do the Golden Globe nominees sure. before we look at the non-nominated films. So the 17th Annual Golden Globes were given on March 10th, 1960. Best Film Drama, Ben-Hur Beat Out, Anatomy of a Murder, Diary of Anne Frank, The Nun Story, and On the Beach. So a very similar breakdown. Best Film Comedy, Some Like It Hot, Beat Out, But Not For Me, Operation Petticoat, Pillow Talk, and Who Is That Lady? And Best Film Musical, Porgy and Bess Beat Out, The Five Pennies, Lil Abner, Say One For Me, and A Private's Affair. Best Actor in a Drama, Anthony Franciosa for Career, Beat Out, Richard Burton, for Look Back in Anger, Charlton Heston for Ben-Hur, Friedrich March for Middle of the Night, and Joseph Schildkraut, or Schildkraut for Diary of Anne Frank. So that's a completely different set of nominees with the exception of Charlton Heston. Yeah. Yeah, it is a very different breakdown there. The Best Actress for Drama is much more similar. That one they gave to Elizabeth Taylor for Suddenly Last Summer, she beat out Audrey Hepburn for The Nun Story, Catherine Hepburn for Suddenly Last Summer, Lee Remick for Anatomy of a Murder, and Simone Signoret for Room at the Top. So that's much closer to the Academy choices. Best Actor for Musical or Comedy went to Jack Lemmon for Some Like It Hot. And that beat out Clark Gable in But Not For Me, Cary Grant for Operation Pennycoat, Dean Martin for Who Was That Lady, and Sidney Poitier for Porgy and Bess. Best Actress for Musical or Comedy went to Marilyn Monroe for Some Like It Hot, beating out Dorothy Dandridge for Porgy and Bess, Doris Day for Pillow Talk, Shirley MacLaine for Ask Any Girl, and Lily Palmer for But Not For Me. Best Supporting Actor went to Stephen Boyd for Ben-Hur. So, Stephen Boyd, let's just remind ourselves, he was Messala. So, they ended up giving the award to the same film, but to a completely different actor. He beat out Fred Astaire for On the Beach, Tony Randall for Pillow Talk, Robert Vaughn for The Young Philadelphians, and Joseph Welch for Anatomy of a Murder. Best Supporting Actress went to Susan Kona for Imitation of Life, beating out Edith Evans for The Nun Story, Estelle Helmsley for Take a Giant Step, Juanita Moore for Imitation of Life, and Shelley Winters for Diary of Anne Frank. Best Director, William Wyler for Ben-Hur, beat out Stanley Kramer for On the Beach, Otto Preminger for Anatomy of a Murder, George Stevens for The Diary of Anne Frank, and Fred Zinneman for The Nun Story. Best Foreign Film. This lists five nominations. It doesn't list the winner. Hmm. But it lists Black Orpheus, Odd Obsession, The Bridge, Wild Strawberries, and Weir Wunderkind. So it's a similar nominee list, but as I said, there's no stated winner there. Uh, Best Music Original Score went to Ernest Gold for On the Beach. Best Film Promoting International Understanding went to The Diary of Anne Frank beating out The Nun Story, Odds Against Tomorrow, On the Beach, and Take a Giant Step. The Most Promising Newcomer Male had a four-way tie for the win, and then one runner-up. <laughs> so Barry Coe, Troy Donahue, George Hamilton, and James Shigeta were all winners, and Michael Callan was a runner-up. Runner and that I can see, because... Well, Troy Donahue I know from a song lyric from Greece. But George Hamilton and James Shigeta both went way beyond this. I know James Shigeta mostly as Mr. Takagi from Die Hard. Okay. That's not a huge part of his career. We're looking at, you know, Flower Drum Song, Bridge in the Sun, 
1998 Mulan. Uh, most promising newcomer female. Again, four-way tie for the win and one runner-up. So the winners were Angie Dickinson, Janet Monroe, Stella Stevens, and Tuesday Weld, beating out Diane Baker. Achievement in Television went to Edward R. Murrow. Outstanding Merit went to The Nun Story. Special Awards. Andrew Martin won an award for directing The Chariot Race in Ben-Hur. Francis X. Bushman got the award for being a famous silent film star, and Ramon Novaro also got the award for being a famous silent film star. The Special Journalistic Merit Award went to Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons, which is an interesting combination for those of us who follow the You Must Remember This podcast. That's kind of like giving it to Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you don't listen to You Must Remember This, you should check it out. It is a fantastic look at Golden Age Hollywood. The Henry Addo Awards for the World Film Favorites went to Doris Day and Rock Hudson. And the Samuel Goldwyn Award went to Room at the Top. The Cecil B. DeMille Award went to Bing Crosby. So how do you feel stacking those two up against each other? The Golden Globes versus the Oscars. I mean, I have limited experience with all of the nominees. I feel like the Oscars got it more right from a dramatic perspective. But the Golden Globes have the benefit of splitting out music and comedy. I mean, Jack Lemmon did get nominated, but there was no way some Like It Hot was going to, as a comedy, was going to get nominated at this point in time by the Academy. Yeah, I would agree. That's one of the things I'm liking about the Golden Globes is that split. Because some Like It Hot deserves recognition. When the AFI put together their first lists of the best films of all time, and they broke it down by genre, Some Like It Hot was the pick for the greatest American comedy film of all time. Followed by Tootsie, so they seem to like cross-dressing. <laughs> but yeah, it's a fantastic movie that is easy to recommend. The edge that I think Ben-Hur has is just the scale and complexity of production. You know, I was looking at the director nom uh, nominee list and, you know, uh, Billy Wilder's on there. And, you know, from my opinion, you know, if I had a choice between which two to watch, would I watch Some Like It Hot first? Yes. But when you look at the scale and scope of what had to be achieved, I could argue that William Wyler had the more complex and difficult job, and I think I, I think that scale and complexity is what really drove and powered Ben-Hur through the majority of its nominations. I would agree. Tipping my hand a little bit for the conversation that is probably coming up shortly anyway, I have no issues with Ben-Hur winning any of these awards. It is not the film released in 1959, that I find the most entertaining or most engaging. There are a few that we have mentioned that I, I find just more enjoyable to watch, but none of them would be this difficult just to make. You are looking at recreating a world that hasn't been seen really in 2,000 years, and... Okay, it may not have been seen exactly this way, 
they were not as cognizant of Hollywood's whitewashing in the days that this was made, although it stands out now. I mean, this is this is a fictional story that overlaps the the Bible in a lot of ways. And for something that is inspired by the Bible, there's a whole lot of white people. Because the the Bible, while it may come as a shock to some, doesn't have any white people in it. Right. You know, I'll, I'll give them that. And again, that is something that modern audiences are far more cognizant of than the 1959 audiences were. But in terms of technical achievement... Yeah. Maybe it doesn't bear to say, but this was before digital cameras, this was before CGI, so that chariot scene was achieved by building a chariot, by building an arena and doing a chariot race. A lot of the uh, naval battles used models, and they also built two full-size galley ships for when they thought that the models wouldn't hold up. So that's a level of craft and complexity that, due to the better tools, obviously, that you just typically don't see today. Yeah, it's... It was huge. I mean, we have been talking about movies up to this point with something like Singing in the Rain, which was not extravagant, but not totally mundane. That had a lot of sets mm-hmm. and things like that as well. That had a total budget of a quarter of a million, and that was just a few years prior. The estimated budget for Ben-Hur was $15 million. That is huge, for especially for 1959. I mean, that is a massive number. But at the box office, it took in closer to $75 million. So it took in five times that amount. It is an incredibly difficult film to make especially, as you said, in 1959. Because to consider doing it now, you would not have a visual effects team this small. It would be far more extravagant, way more CGI. It, yeah, so it... Like I said, it's not the film that entertains me the most, but I'm not going to say they were wrong to pick it, because even though it's not as entertaining as others... Just the fact that they made it and made it this well possibly makes it the most impressive film of the year. And, you know, it has stood the test of time. The IMDb Top 250 Movies of All Time list has it as number 207 at the time of this recording. The only real con I kind of had with the film was the actress who played Esther just didn't really click for me so when the film starts leaning heavily on her in the maybe i should say in the last third that's when the film really started to slow down and slog for me and it was more just i wasn't enjoying her performance and she kind of started being the focal character yeah yeah i can see that and it's it's not that her performance was all that bad i think it was yeah, I don't think she was a, a poor actress, but I do think that her character was not fleshed out. She was the woman to be one, in a sense. She had more to do than a lot of female characters at the time, but it was all plot-driven, task-oriented, without really defining her character. 
Yes, and she... You get the sense that she's supposed to be somewhat the motivating force in that last third. And I don't know if it was her chemistry with Heston or maybe it was the writing and the way they had the character. Instead of her being this charismatic, compelling character, she came out, she started becoming the nag to me. So just, uh, you know, again, a subjective thing. You're right, she's not a bad actress, but that that character and performance at that point just wasn't clicking for me. Yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of that was just... I, I agree, I had the same issue where she wasn't clicking. I just want to say that, yeah, I'm not blaming the actress for not having hooks to latch onto because they're not in the script. Yeah. It's, this is what you do, and this is what you do, and this is what you do, but there's never any concern about, well, this is why you're doing it. Aside from being in love with Judah, but also wanting to keep the promises she made to his family. So we, we understand the conflict she's in, but we don't understand her well enough to have predicted which way she would go before she's asked to make the choice. At least that was my experience. All right, so let us compare it to the complete list of releases for that year. So IMDb actually puts above this both parts of the human condition. So it's a Japanese film that came out in two parts, No Greater Love and Road to Eternity. The World of Apu. Number four is the first English language release. That is North by Northwest, directed by Hitchcock. Number five is Some Like It Hot, directed by Billy Wilder. And then we have The Great War, which appears to be an Italian film just based on who's in it and the, the cast and crew. Ballad of a Soldier is number seven, which I believe is Russian. The Curlew's Cry comes in at number eight, and The 400 Blows comes in at number nine by Francois Truffaut. Comparing to Letterboxd for the year, their number one for the year is North by Northwest, followed by 400 Blows, Some Like It Hot, Sleeping Beauty, Hiroshima Mon Amour, and then we have Ben-Hur. So I have seen more of those. Mm -hmm. We've discussed it before. I, I think having Sleeping Beauty that high is, again, that nostalgia effect for people who are saying, oh, any Disney is a perfect 5 out of 5 or 10 out of 10. I, I think it's because it was the first time Disney did something daring with the art direction of one of his animated films. Sleeping Beauty, the look of it breaks the mold of what you expect from a Disney film of the era. Yeah, that that is true. I think Sleeping Beauty is a good movie. I just don't think it is good enough to rank higher than Ben-Hur or Anatomy of a Murder without that nostalgia factor. Right. Giving it that extra boost. And I also have slight issues with it because I am a huge fan of the Fleischer Studios and they invented the rotoscoping process and they held the patents on it. So in order to use rotoscoping, you had to, you know, pay them their due for having invented the process. And the Sleeping Beauty Blu-ray released behind the scenes footage of the making of Sleeping Beauty where they were clearly rotoscoping. And not once did Disney ever pay Fleischer's for using their technology 
they had it in kind of a secret room, so they reproduced it but didn't cut them to check. And the, the Fleischer company was just not well treated by the industry. I think it was the best animation house in America in the 30s. But between Paramount, Disney, and Warner Brothers, it was unfairly crushed. But that is what gave us Popeye, the original Superman animated shorts, and Betty Boop. It's just three examples of the Fleischer Studios. They invented the bouncing ball for their sing-along cartoons, which, by the way, came out with synchronized audio four years prior to Steamboat Willie. That was not the first synchronous audio. That was the one where you had to have synchronous audio to do it. So that was most people's first exposure to the synchronous audio, because that's what the, the theaters were upgrading for. But the Fleischer Studios had sing-alongs for the audience with a little bouncing ball going along with the lyrics. And they were picking popular songs, so the people who didn't pay for the upgrade in their theaters could have the in-house orchestra that most of them had just play the music because they'd know it. So the Fleischers beat Disney to synchronize sound by four years. And that has been sort of erased from history. They have a full-length Gulliver's Travels that is as good as anything that Disney was putting out at the time. It is, and it was almost the first feature-length animated film ever released, except with Snow White coming, the Disney company made backdoor deals with the exhibitors, saying, Snow White is coming, it, it's expensive, we will give you this break if you make us exclusively your first full-length animated. So they could not get distribution for Gulliver's Travels, even though it was finished four months prior to Snow White. They had to sit on it for two years before they could actually release it. I mean, Pinto Kolvig, who was the original voice of Goofy, jumped ship and went to Fleischer because they treated their creators far better than Disney or Warner Brothers did. And yeah, Disney's response to that was to stop making Goofy cartoons for a while, and they realized, oh wait, we paid people per recording session, not per cartoon. So all those Goofy how-to-ski how-to videos where the narrator explains it and then Goofy just kind of... Mm -hmm acts it out, they were conceived so they could keep using Pinto Kolvig's pre-recorded voice without having to pay him again. So those were 20-year-old recordings that they were layering into new cartoons without paying Kolvig a dime. Yeah, um, Out of the Inkwell is a fantastic novel that details the history of the Fleischer Studios. If there's any interest, I recommend it. It's a fascinating story. And they were, unfortunately driven out of business despite being, I think, the best out there. But anyway, back to 1959 and Ben-Hur and its competition. So, opening it up beyond the nominees, what would be your pick for the best film of the year? I'd have to go North by Northwest. As would I, but for some reason, the Academy often overlooked Hitchcock. Yeah, that's, that's the only other one that has... It has moments of scale. I mean, they they built mm -hmm. a Mount Rushmore to make that film. So nothing matches the complete scale of Ben-Hur, because what North by Northwest does for 10 minutes of the middle and 10 minutes of the end, Ben-Hur does for all 222 minutes of film. So as a production, nothing matches Ben-Hur for the year. But in terms of drawing me in as a member of the audience, yeah, I would... 
agree with history that North by Northwest and Some Like It Hot are both better films than Ben Hur. If if they if they had all been nominated, I still probably would have given William Wyler best director because again, he probably had the most complicated directing job out of any of the films that were made that year pulled it off masterfully but north by northwest would have been the best picture yeah i can i can agree with that and that's not taking anything away from hitchcock there are several other years where i think uh, hitchcock got denied best director of the year but i think i would still give it to william wyler this year yeah i think Ben-Hur and North by Northwest both deserve to be nominated in both of those categories. But I can agree with you on, on splitting the actual victories that way. So I think all we really have left to discuss is who we would recommend this to. I, I would recommend it to families wanting more Christian-themed entertainment. I'm, I know for a while this was like a perennial... Easter type film. It doesn't really fit into the sword and sandal genre, but it does have a very uh, luscious reproduction of a particular period in Roman history, so I would recommend it for that. Slight content warning. I'm hoping I'm using an appropriate term, Blaine, so correct me if I'm not. But there is what I would call like brown face in the film. So Hugh Griffith is not Arabic and he is wearing dark skin makeup for the role. And I don't know that it strikes people as strongly because we're not talking like Civil War era slavery. But slavery is a major component of the film. It suggested, or I believe, that Simonidas and Esther are slaves of the her family, and I believe he's giving them their freedom at the beginning of the film, if I'm understanding that scene quite right. And then he is essentially, they kind of, they half portray it as being a convict, but before he's freed and made a son, essentially the soldier whose life he saves takes him on as a slave and it's just he's a slave that he has doing chariot races for. So there is a strong slavery component to the film. There is. I was actually kind of surprised it had a G rating in 1959 because its depiction of that slavery is accurate enough that there are some rather violent scenes. So there's... Not as violent as it could be. Like you will, you know, there's lashings and things like that. There is blood, but yeah, I I would have thought that the more conservative audiences of 1959 would have rated it PG, and I wonder if it was rated G, specifically because they said no, this is about Jesus Christ. We want everyone to have access to it. So I wonder if a similar movie that was not based on the theology, would have had that G rating in that year. But that that's pure speculation on my part, which we may be able to follow up with, because there might be 
a similar example in the mm. releases from 1960 that we can take a look at. One of the films that Stanley Kubrick directed and disowned is coming up in our next year. Um, before we get to the next year, that yeah, I would agree. I would recommend this to people who are interested in the, the source material, for sure. And it is a remarkable spectacle of this Roman era. So even beyond that, it, it is just a good film. So if you just want to watch a film about the oppressed people rising up and fighting back against the, the bullies that have their the leadership position, this will fit that bill as well. I mean, it, it's the kind of thing where, yeah, I'm not sure because of that, the violence and the slavery that Trey mentioned, despite the G rating, it's not something I would tell a, a six or seven year old, yeah, go ahead and watch it. But then again, it's two hours and 22 minutes. So the average six or seven year old isn't going to make it all the way through it anyway. So a, a little bit behind the camera, my my son is 11 and I started watching it on a Saturday night. He joined me right about when the loose roof tile was dropped and stayed through it until after the chariot scene. And he was done after the chariot scene. So at, at 11, I think he made it maybe an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes through it. Okay, that's fair. Speaking of the chariot scene, I think it may also be worth mentioning that even though it didn't, I didn't realize it until here, I strongly suspect that this is referenced in Greece as well with the, the spikes mm -hmm. on the tires when they had the, the car race in the aqueduct in Greece. And while you're mentioning that, I did peek ahead at the 1960 film. So that the film I was mentioning was Spartacus, which I don't know if you've seen it. It has been re-rated recently because the MPAA rating attached to it did not exist when this was released in 1960. But Spartacus came out at PG-13, and I don't think the content of the two films is that drastically different. So I'm planning on watching Spartacus this week. Just from what I know of the films, save it for next time. I'll save it for next time. Maybe that's the best thing to do, because I'm sure we'll touch on Spartacus next month. Yeah, it's probably going to be one of the ones that is mentioned. Or maybe not. Yeah, it does have... It does take home a couple statuettes. So... Yeah, we can leave that till next time, because we'll have that reminder. So next time, we will actually be looking at Billy Wilder's The Apartment. That one Best Picture, nominated against The Alamo, Elmer Gantry, Sons and Lovers, and The Sundowners. Which is interesting, because this is another one, if you compare Best Picture to Best Director, there are... Two Best Director nominations mm. that do not have Best Picture nominations in the next year. so And that's for Jules Dessin for Never on Sunday and Alfred Hitchcock for Psycho. So we will be taking a look at those next year. Or next month, I should say. Okay. So did you have any final thoughts? No. Uh, uh, you know, again, a, a very entertaining film. I definitely recommend that um, everybody check it out.
I, I can get behind that. Just except my only caveat is that I think the G rating is a little lenient. So I said a six and seven year old are probably not going to make it through on their own, but I would be okay watching it with a six or seven year old if I was watching it with them to discuss what we were seeing on screen. So I wouldn't necessarily go right to the PG-13 that Spartacus has hit, but I would give it a PG. Okay, so that wraps up this month, and there will be at least two of us next month. We are trying to get a guest on, but we haven't finalized the scheduling for that, so I'm not going to name names, but we will have at least trained myself and hopefully a third person discussing the apartment next month. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.